0: Welcome to the uh, fifth of these lectures on natural capital. Uh, In the first four, we've been looking at the concept and some of the metrics issues, the cost benefit analysis, the accounting, essentially the techniques of natural capital uh, and uh, setting out the framework for uh, putting those into uh, uh, an accounting base. In the second part of these lectures starting with this one we're going to look at the principles by which natural capital can be applied as the core environmental policy uh, before looking at the overarching framework and in particular the 25-year plan and there are basically three principles uh, to operationalizing uh, the natural capital approach These are that public money should be paid for public goods, that the polluter should pay, and that any development should meet the criteria of net environmental gain. First one is about making sure, public goods, that the things that wouldn't otherwise be provided are in fact provided, and therefore we have enough, the right level of natural capital, which won't just happen on its own. The second one is about internalising externalities, about making sure that the economy properly takes into the account all the costs associated with pollution. And then the third is making sure there is no fallback in our natural capital, that anyone who does damage to the natural capital must make sure that there is a compensating increase and that increase must be Uh, more than just the expected damage to give uh, uh, a precautionary element so that uh, there isn't really any risk that in the absence of understanding the full impacts of development and so on that we actually allow natural capital to get gradually trashed and fall back. So those are the three principles before I say we'll turn to how they all fit together into a natural capital plan a 25-year plan uh, and how that might work in policy terms. So this lecture is all about public goods and uh, uh, in environmental areas uh, I suspect most people have not really thought about public goods at all just as they probably haven't thought about accounting. These things have come to the fore uh, because uh, they are the practical analogue Of the new fashion for thinking about things in natural capital uh, ways Uh, and when it comes to public goods uh, the headline public goods for public money is most pertinent to agriculture and the reforms of the uh, agricultural policy post-Brexit and indeed uh, the Secretary of State uh, Michael Gove has proposed that the subsidies to farmers in future should be on this criteria, uh, public money for public goods, and not on much else. So not surprisingly, when you've got about 3 billion of agricultural subsidies in play, and they're supposed to go uh, towards public goods, suddenly a lot of people sat up and noticed and said, hey, um, can't what we want to do be called public goods too? so we need to start off by being really very clear what a public good is and what it isn't Uh, in other words to have hard conceptual and empirical ways of thinking about this problem so that we can sort out the difference between genuinely using public money to enhance our natural environment and greenwash and subsidies for all sorts of things which uh, people might want to have but really aren't uh, um, uh, going to do much for our natural environment. So let me start off with what is a public good? Now it's an economic concept and it's an extremely precisely defined economic concept. It is what we call non-excludable and non-rival. Non-excludable means that you can't stop someone having it. And secondly, Uh, Non-rival means that if someone has it, someone else can have it at the same time as well. So what sort of things fall into this category? Well, the air is an example. If you breathe in the air, so can I. Uh, You can't exclude me. And if I breathe in air, I don't stop you having clean air either, except in a very, very confined space. Um, The classic example is broadcasting. If you listen to a program on the BBC, so can I. And in the absence of some mechanism to stop me, it's pretty hard for you to stop me listening to the radio just because um, uh, you happen to be listening to it or I don't want to pay you for listening to it. So non-rival, non-excludable. And as I come on in a moment, turns out that much of our natural environment is exactly in this public goods format. So, if that's what public goods are, and by the way, private goods are excludable and rival, um, so that's what the difference between public and private is, um, what's the problem anyway? Why why won't people provide these public goods just as they'll provide all the private goods that you consume all the time? And the answer to this question is that public goods are extremely hard to work out how to get paid for delivering If you're a private company or business or individual and what's more because everybody who uses or consumes them can get benefit and none of the benefits that extra people get harm anyone else you want as many people as possible to consume uh, the product so we need to get paid and we want the maximum number of people who can benefit to benefit this is the antithesis of what Uh, A private good looks like and if you think about providing a public good and I use the broadcast example because people are familiar with it um, you know what's involved well a lot of costs on the BBC essentially fixed costs they're going to pay the presenters on the today program the same whether lots of us listen to the program or less of us listen to it they have just got to have a today program on Radio 4. They've got to have a news program. And if you're going to have a news service, you need a network of correspondence, an information system, data, computers, all that kind of stuff. Okay. So you just have fixed costs. But the marginal cost of someone using it, me listening to the today program, is zero. So the efficient price for this service for broadcasting is zero because. It doesn't cost anything to allow someone else to use it as well as uh, me or you and we want as many people to benefit as possible because they're not imposing any cost on society trouble is if you charge marginal cost in this case pretty much zero you don't get your money back and so the problem with public goods is that no private company has the incentive if something is genuinely non-excludable can't be uh, uh, can't prohibit people from using it and it's non rival you want as many people as possible to use it as you can you just can't get your money back and so what we have to do is work out how we can deliver these goods if the private sector won't and there are basically three ways of doing this there is the classic public expenditure route the government should just pay there is creating clubs which is designing mechanisms to make it a chargeable thing and therefore exclude people who are not members of the club, even if it is theoretically non-excludable and it's non-rival. So we're familiar with lots of clubs uh, um, in all sorts of walks of life if you've been to a university you will be assailed with people who want to join clubs you're probably a member of a lot of clubs yourself uh, 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 and every one of those demands a fixed membership fee but very little use charge because you don't want to be de- deterred from consumption marginal cost of you using their facilities are zero but you need to have some revenue raising mechanism the BBC is a club you pay a license fee a golf club is a club you pay a membership fee the national trust is a club you pay a membership fee for access to many of the assets even though they're pretty much uh, non-rival the club membership fee is the enforceable bit on excludability and of course you need the law to make sure that you can be charged if you go into a national trust a property without paying a membership fee then in theory the police could be called and you could be ejected. If you don't have a licence fee there's a whole legal procedure for getting you, uh, detecting you not uh, uh, listening or, 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 or taking broadcasts, a register and database food paid and a prosecution system to get you if you haven't uh, taken that licence fee on board. And indeed there's a special legal framework for the BBC for that regard. So these are ways of doing it. The third one is to make it genuinely private even though it's a public good and then uh, stop people uh, using it and only allowing the owners of the property to have access to it even if consumption is non-rival. Private beaches are like that um, and that's why rightly people object to people putting fences fences around uh, open space and essentially privatising them. Plans to have a whole um, uh, park in the Scottish Highlands full of uh, wolves and lynxes and all sorts of uh, reintroduced uh, species, put a fence around it and charge an entrance fee is another example of trying to privatise what is public and the difficulty with the so-called privatisation of the woodlands is exactly in this category too. That's why it's economically typically inefficient to privatise these things and also why the public with perhaps less uh, understandable uh, uh, grasp of the economic concepts intuitively feel it's wrong. So we need the state to provide, we need Um, uh, a clear classification of these uh, public goods and then we need to think about how to operationalise the consequences. So in the natural capital territory what are the economically public goods at stake? And the answer at one level is nearly all of it. So ecosystems, habitats, nature reserves, coastlines, parks in cities, green spaces in towns. Um, uh, All of these river access to river catchments, catchment pathways, water supplies in rivers, uh, the state of our estuaries. These are very very hard to take as private goods. They have public good elements and it's no accident that almost all of those examples I've described will in the absence of explicit provision and policy get uh, trashed get over exploited and be underprovided in the economy and their under provision uh, undermines the efficiency and therefore the sustainable economic growth of economies. So Privatising this stuff is a tough ask and private markets will not necessarily and indeed are unlikely to provide these outcomes. classic case is think about climate change and our atmosphere. The climate change is essentially a global public bad and the atmosphere eh, with um, a reasonable level of, of carbon is a global public good. The atmosphere is non-excludable, it's non-rival, and that's why we have to have a collective solution to this public good, public bad problem, which no individual private uh, activity can possibly solve. So, it's the job of government, it's the job of policy, it's the job of the 25-year plan to ensure that these public goods, which would not otherwise be provided by the market, are properly provided. That's why we need to think about this as public money for public goods. We could of course acquire the money to pay for these things through general taxation, any general would do, but we could do it other ways. We can use some really large scale clubs, the National Trust, the Wildlife Trust, uh, the RSPB. They're all club models and nearly all of them try to essentially give quite a lot of open access, even to those people who haven't paid. So go to my local uh, Bebout Nature Reserve, down the road from where I live at Chimney Meadows. Nobody says you can't go through it because you're not a member of the, the Wildlife Trust. It's open to everybody. Lots of people use it. And indeed, what we effectively do is try to make people understand but in order for these things to be provided, they ought to contribute. But we make the marginal cost of access zero, and therefore it's non-excludable and non-rival. We ask, as people tug on their concerns for future generations, think about it as a charitable activity, we ask people to contribute. So we need to provide these. What then is the application of this thinking more generally to our wider natural capital. Well we have a natural uh, we have natural nature reserves, we have a um, a plethora of protected uplands, we have open access, we've driven a long way towards opening up our public goods, we're trying to create a public good around the entire coastline of Britain to make the coastline accessible to all and uh, many parks and gardens are already open access and therefore Uh, non-excludable too. The worry is that because government is not helping and local authorities and charities and so on to meet the full capital maintenance of maintaining these natural capital public goods intact through time, that people uh, grasp for short-term fixes. And that's where we get a lot more pressure for charging for access to the environment um, and all the consequences of the exclusion of people who may not be able to afford to do so but nevertheless would not place any burden on society if they did and indeed society might positively benefit because it helps address obesity, mental illness, physical uh, well-being, and therefore ultimately our health and education costs more generally. Now the big application area has been agriculture and that um, uh, is, has been the, the big talking point around public goods in, in the current context so what exactly um, is in here is this the the bell tolling for farmers um, and uh, just a, a way of squeezing farmers is this a sort of policy framework to turn farmers into if you like public park managers or is this a coherent and sensible approach to thinking about agriculture going forward now to see how sensible this principle is in the agricultural domain you have to think about what would be different with a public goods approach to what currently goes on basically what we do in agriculture is we subsidize farmers to produce private goods there's nothing non-excludable or non-rival about food food is excludable and rival you eat the steak I can't eat that same steak you can be excluded from having it if you don't pay for it. There's a whole retail system which enables you to buy it if you're willing and able to pay for it. It's the very typical uh, private good uh, case. And when, for example, the chairman of the uh, Environment Select Committee stands up in the House of Commons and asks the Prime Minister whether she agrees that food is a public good, when she said yes, in understandable circumstances in the Prime Minister's question times in the House of Commons, she was actually wrong, precisely wrong. And the questionnaire um, might have been interested in the interests of current farmers and um, might have been well representing the interests of various lobbies in that frame, or not, Um, but um, that is not the right answer. Food is a private good with private markets. True that food markets are distorted, but that's caused by tariffs and the very subsidies themselves like paying uh, a basic farm payment to people just for owning the land and therefore increasing land prices which capitalise those subsidies and keeping uh, marginal farms in production uh, well beyond their economic level. So we should leave farmers to get on with farming. That's a private good and there's a framework for doing that. And we should concentrate on getting rid of tariffs and make sure that that uh, farming framework is a fair and level playing field in animal welfare terms and so on. But farmers look after 70% of our land and that land contains much, if not most, of the natural capital of our country. And we should want to make sure that farmers look after that, not just in their private interest, but in our interests as well. That they should do things to make sure that our biodiversity, uh, that our landscapes are properly protected, uh, that the capital maintenance is carried out so that the value of these natural capitals in their domain is not allowed to deteriorate. And indeed, where there are clear benefits, we should pay them to enhance that natural capital where the benefits accrue to us rather than to them privately. That's the essence of what's going on here and uh, there's nothing um, new or different about that in as far as we've spent a lot of time getting farmers to uh, look after these uh, wonderful assets uplands especially but lowlands too those uh, beetle strips those uh, hedgerow requirements you know farmers can't do what they like on their land now anyway they're not allowed to use ddt they're not allowed to rip up hedgerows They're not allowed to do a whole series of things to water flowing through their uh, farms. This isn't new. This is just putting sensible requirements in place and paying them to deliver what they wouldn't otherwise deliver. Now, my own view is that instead of telling farmers what the public goods are they ought to deliver, although we might well want an institution to provide them with guidance, we should ask farmers themselves to come forward with what they can offer on their farms in our public interest to protect and enhance natural capital. Just like they offer to the market sheep or cereal or crops of various forms. They are providing a service, they should come forward and offer those services and they should offer the cost associated with them. And in my own view this should be effectively a bidding process. Tell us what you can do. Tell us how much you want to be paid and then we can have a look at all the bids and offers that farmers make and see which are the best value for protecting uh, natural capital, to making sure the thresholds and renewables aren't breached and to make sure that we get the right enhancements going forward. And this is a perfectly coherent market uh, that can be constructed. It's a market for public goods, not a market in public goods and it taps the huge knowledge that's uh, 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 the reservoir of uh, the frame for the data and understanding that farmers have of their own land which none of the rest of us can understand to the depths that they will do, do. So we can have a market for natural capital, we should encourage farmers to bid that natural capital and they should bid to the subsidies which we set centrally as the public provision of those public goods, the public spending that lies behind those um, uh, public goods that we want provided. And by the way, not only farmers can do this. Wildlife Trust should be able to bid to this money, the National Trust should do, Bug Life should be able to do so, Plant Life should be able to do so, a large number of local charities, local environmental groups should be able to offer up public goods in return for payments. That way we get the broadest diversity of opportunities, we get the maximum natural capital bucks for our money and we make sure that we are on course to to provide that wider provision of public goods across the economy. So, public goods for public money is the right thing to do. It is the economically efficient thing to do. We have to of course decide how much money is available to do that. Uh, This money should be brought together. And then we should bring forward those huge number of opportunities which are out there are known to farmers, to all these other people involved, all these other organisations and initiatives, voluntary bodies and so on, to do the right thing in providing those public goods to ensure our natural environment is in a better state into the future. And in thinking about this great economic opportunity. Uh, as a necessary and essential part of any serious natural capital programme. You have to think what happens if you don't. So if we fall back to calling things which aren't public goods, public goods and go on subsidising like food production. Well the answer is pretty straightforward. You can go and walk in the countryside now and see exactly what happens. We have an excess use of pollutants, we have Water companies paying to take the chemicals out of the water that have been put in by the farming practices. We have overgrazing in the uplands. We have large-scale environmental damage to many of our crucial natural capital assets at the thresholds. We have what we've got now and that's why we've lost a great deal of our farmland birds. That's why the uplands are overgrazed in the shape they're in at the moment that's why the rivers are in the state that they are that's why we as consumers have to pay so much for our water and for our sewage services this is the consequence of not doing public goods properly of under providing them of course it could be even worse we could go around privatizing all these things and pretending that private markets are going to provide them they're not they can't and therefore we should seize the rational economic uh, program and in that context get the state to do one of the things which it has to do if we're to bequeath to the next generation an environment better than the one we've got or even as good as the one we've got. Of course there are other things they need to do too. Make polluters pay is an extremely economically efficient and growth enhancing thing to do. That's in the next lecture. And then they're gonna have to make people pay compensation for any damage they cause to our natural environment and that's the net environmental gain principle which is in the, 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 the lecture after we deal with the polluted pays principle. So public goods for public money, absolutely essential to any serious natural capital programme. Bottom up, enhancing and encouraging all the interested parties to come forward with the best bucks for the money. That's good for the economy, good for the environment and needs to be implemented and not greenwashed and uh, usurped. For private goods like food production and even food security, there may be national interest reasons for promoting those things, but they're not public good reasons. And the overarching priority, the overarching need, is to correct this market failure but the, that the markets will not provide those public goods unless we intervene. Let's do it clinically, let's do it efficiently, and let's use markets wherever we can to get the best bucks for our money. Thank you.